I will set out for Gaul myself and confront our enemies. They will learn the error of their ways. But why might early Christians have called Nero the Antichrist? I will quash my deluded enemy, not with the sword. I intend to sing to Welcome back to the life of Nero. Uh, with us today, for the first time in a post-COVID world, uh, he's been with us before, Professor Edward J. Watts, Professor of History at the University of California, San Diego, author of several prize-winning books, including The Final Pagan Generation, I think that's me, um, a great book about Hypatia, one of my favourite people in all of history. We had him on back in 2019, uh, PC, pre-COVID, talking about the Mortal Republic. And he is joining us today to talk about his upcoming book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Professor Watts, welcome back to our humble show. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and to to talk Nero and everything else with you guys. Tell the tell the folks what you're drinking from as we speak. Don't make me pull a Sulla. This is my my favorite souvenir from uh, whatever two three pre COVID years ago. There you go. We'll have to get you a post COVID mug uh, this time. But um, so, congratulations on the book, the new book. Is it out yet, or is it coming out? Uh, it's out. It's officially out as of two weeks ago. Nice. Congratulations! Um, great Thank book, you. great title. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I did have a cease and desist from Edward Gibbon. He said, uh, "Decline <laughs> of Rome is my thing." Uh, you're yeah. obviously trying to. Uh, you're the new Gibbon. Ooh, I like that. Ooh. Yeah, I don't know. I think that, you know, I think uh, Gibbons had a good run, good 250 years in print. It's a, it's a pretty good um, pretty good thing that he did. It's your <laughs> turn now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I don't know for you guys, but for me, that was where my interest in Roman history really started. I, I read Gibbon probably when I was, I don't know, uh, 18 or 19, I think, the first time. I remember buying it at a secondhand bookstore somewhere down in Melbourne. Stealing And uh, I've still got it on my bookshelf, the copy that I bought 30 years ago. And it was uh, was a tough read, but an enjoyable read, you know. Um, So, yeah, hopefully 250 years from now, people will be buying your book at secondhand bookstores and uh, reading it. Do you think books will still be around? 250 years from now? I'm not so sure. I think, you know, I think books are a wonderful, wonderful thing to have. I think that's part of why Gibbon is so powerful, right? I mean, the, the editions that are now made of Gibbon, I mean, there's like the Penguin, which is readable and cheap, but then there's the beautiful leather bound, you know, modern library copies of Gibbon. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of those sit on the shelf. I don't know mm-hmm. if people read them, but they're beautiful, beautiful mm-hmm. books. And they think this is the thing with books is they're beautiful objects. Mm-hmm. Um, Trophies. Not your $6 paperback, but right. you know, a beautifully made book is always going to be something that people want to have. Uh, so I'm hoping the object is the, you know, the, the thing that will have that permanence. I've got 20-year-old twins and they don't read, much to my 
complete disgust and embarrassment. They're, they're very successful kids, um, but they don't read. And, and for years, they've told me anything I need to learn, I can learn from YouTube. And it drives me nuts. But uh, I, I fear that that's, uh, that's what we're staring down the barrel of, is generations of kids who think, well, if I can't get it on TikTok in uh, 30 seconds, then, you know, it's what's the point? You know? it's, not, it's, not, it's not worth it. Anyway. Having. Let's yeah. let's that's that's the decline of modern society as TikTok. There I we think, go. Unfortunately, yeah. Ed. Listen, great title: the history of a dangerous idea. Um, what is the dangerous idea, and why is the decline and fall eternal? These are the obvious first questions. Yeah, I think that the the moment that I kind of that kind of dawned on me that this is a story. You know, the story of the decline. The, the story of the history of the idea of the decline of Rome um, was when I saw this in a play by Plautus that was written around 200 BC. And so for, for those of us who know Roman history, we know 200 BC, there's no way that you could look at this and say, this is the decline of Rome because the empire is expanding. It hasn't even conquered Carthage and Corinth yet. Uh, and so the state is getting stronger by any measure that you want to use. And yet Romans are already talking about it being in decline. And so the story of Roman decline is something that Romans themselves are talking about for almost 1,700 years. Um, and during a lot of that time, the state is growing. The state is getting more prosperous. It's getting stronger. The leadership is better. The political system is integrating more people. Um, and for some of that time, it's also suffering crises. And ultimately, of course, it does fall. It's not here anymore. So when you look at the eternal story of the decline of Rome, you have this, this political entity that we can watch for 1,700 years engaging in these conversations about, well, are we getting worse? Um, and then after Rome you know, falls, after Constantinople is conquered in 1453 and that state ends, this story is still out there. It's just used in a different way by people. So it becomes then a cautionary tale of, well, there was this great empire and it lasted for a really long time, and it did really well for a very long time, and now it's no more. What do we, as people living in the 15th century or the 18th century or the 21st century, have to learn from the experience of that empire? And so this story that Romans told, really, since Roman literature begins, you know, Plautus is the, the earliest sort of person that we have in Latin in extensive sort of preserved uh, texts, he's already talking about this. So as long as we have Romans talking about things, they're talking about this idea, and we're still talking about it now. Um, but I think the other side of that is when you look at this across Roman history, this is frequently an idea that's used to rob people of their rights or rob people of their liberty or rob people of their property. And so this is not just an idea that's always there, but it's an idea that can be used to do things that the society otherwise wouldn't permit. And that's the dangerous part. Um, this becomes a tool where you can say to somebody who is uncomfortable about whatever it is that's going around them, I know why you're uncomfortable. It's right that you're uncomfortable. And we need to do something really dramatic to change the society to make it so that what you're uncomfortable about is no longer a problem. Make Rome great uh, again. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> If I could go back to the first part of your answer just for a second, I just imagine one Roman turning to the other one and going, um, you know, things are different when, from when I was a kid or from my father's day. It's almost like it's that, but they're almost, are they talking about the empire in itself or just daily life as they no longer recognize it any, anymore? I think this is what's interesting is sometimes it's it's 
either one of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when the empire becomes Christian, they're talking about, well, we don't worship God the way that we used to. Um, in, you know, the, the aftermath of the victory over um, Antiochus III, uh, there's a triumphal procession. And one of the most memorable things in uh, one of the historians who describes this is in that triumphal perspe- procession, they bring a pedestal table. And this is the first time that Romans were introduced to tables that didn't have four legs. That's the decline of Rome. You know, and so you have all of these things that are on some level ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. Did pedestal tables really change much of anything? Mm-hmm. Um, did, you know, the way that people worshipped Christian, uh, the Christian God in the seventh century really change much of anything? But at each of those moments, there are people who feel really uncomfortable about something different happening and the mm-hmm. society changing in a way that um, is moving much faster than they're comfortable with. And so the story of decline becomes a way for them to say, I don't, I don't know why these like, young people who came back from Syria have pedestal tables, but that really bothers me. Or I don't know why these people um, you know, worship in this particular way, but it really bothers me. Right. And that really bothers me part becomes something that opportunistic politicians can capitalize on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can tell you why it bothers you and why you're right to be bothered and why they alone are the people who can fix whatever problem it is that um, is making you uncomfortable. And so uh, you, know, you write in the introduction, the Roman rhetoric of decline and renewal left a trail of victims across Roman history. I wrote this book to explain how this common, seemingly innocuous narrative of Roman decline could prove so destructive. And And in reading your book, I took it in two ways. Number one, that... Yes, politicians could use this narrative about decline to push through certain um, policies that they wanted uh, to to reduce and sometimes try to increase um, civil liberties. Um, But also just that the Romans thinking themselves that they were in decline in itself is destructive when this idea gets into a population or a society that, oh, we're going down the drain hole. And and obviously, you know, you know, we could spend the next couple of hours just talking about your country. Uh, <laughs> but there is this... <laughs> You know, you you, you kind of get this sense, I do anyway as an outsider, uh, I get this sense that the US now is it's almost fully capitulated to the idea that, well, China's going to take over and, and, you know, it's over. The, the era of the American empire is waning um, and it sort of sets off like a, like a, a, a mass panic. Um, it's funny, I was watching, completely coincidentally the other day, an, an interview with Bertrand Russell from 1952, uh, huh. so quite, quite late in his life, a television interview, and he was talking about how, uh, you know, he said he was born in 1874 or something like that, and he said, you know, I think people born after 1914 really have no appreciation for how diff- how things have changed in my lifetime like he said the vi- like the very idea that britain wouldn't always rule the seas was in- inconceivable incomprehensible <laughs> to people of my generation and now mm. it's gone and it- and he said like i've i've watched i've watched empires that had lasted for centuries evaporate like the morning mist or something, I'm paraphrasing, but evaporate almost overnight like the morning mist. And, 
Um, this idea that uh, empires can and do fall, and when you're in the middle of one of those empires that's obviously, which you think is falling anyway, whether or not it is, sets off like this this societal panic. Um, in, in Rome's case, it sort of lasted for centuries, a millennia, yeah. really, right? Uh, it, it didn't happen overnight. Um, I've, so I find that a fascinating concept, but I wanted to I wanted to ask what prompted you to take this approach. You know, you was it you said it was reading Plautus, and you just realised that well, this is a narrative that actually lasted for a long time. It's a narrative that that is always there. I think what's interesting is, um, and I, I love the image that you just brought up of Russell and the British Empire because I think the story of uh, I mean, the story of Roman history is one of repeated crises that Rome overcomes a lot of the time. Um, and so there are moments where you can say, there's a real problem here. You know, we are, we're suffering from say smallpox in the 160s AD mm-hmm. uh, and 10%, 20% of our population um, dies. Our farms are depopulated. There's no one farming. We don't have enough food. Cities are collapsing because none of the, the people who run the cities are still alive to run them. We can't even campaign. Marcus Aurelius has to suspend a war for a year because the armies are so badly hit, they can't campaign. And what Marcus does is he basically says, um, the response that we need to have as a society is one that acknowledges the problem. And then we find how everybody can contribute in a positive way to the solution. And so when you read uh, Cassius Dio talking about the reign of Marcus Aurelius, he talks about this, he literally calls this a golden age. And you look at that and you say, under what, you know, under what circumstances would somebody in like 167 look around and see literally, you know, 10% of your town dying, um, wondering about getting food, wondering about how, who's going to run your government? Um, who would look at that and say it's a golden age? The but I think what Dio's point- The people who didn't like that 10%. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's interesting though, you read the accounts of these guys and there is serious survivor's guilt. Even, you know, even if you didn't like those people or you felt (laughs) like they were different than you, why did you survive? You know, why is it that you came out of this and they didn't? And so it's a society that's deeply, deeply traumatized. And what Dio is saying in essence is it's not the conditions. The conditions were terrible. Mm. Um, It's what we did as a society to overcome those conditions. And it's, and it's, I, oh, sorry, yeah, go. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. And I think that's what Rome shows us is that you can have these moments where there are declines that really just sort of crush society in on itself and it makes everything about the world worse. And then you have these moments where by every tangible measure, society is declining, but actually the people living through it feel like they have a collaborative enterprise that they can work on mm-hmm. to try to make things better. And I think one of the things that's interesting about Plautus is these texts start right after the Battle of Zama, right? This, this narrative of decline happens right after Rome has beaten Hannibal. And I think part of what you're seeing in the 190s is everybody's looking back and saying, well, we came together. You know, in the 210s, we didn't even have enough food for our city. And we had Hannibal in Italy, and he's peeling our allies off of us. And we spent that decade working together to reverse this. Mm. And so when they get to the 190s and there's division and there's pedestal tables that some people have and some people don't, and there's wealth that some people have and some people don't, part of that rhetoric of decline is saying we are not together working for some sort of goal in the way that we were 20 years ago. Mm. And like Russell, they remember that. 
Uh, and so the, the evaporation of that consensus is really a powerful feeling. And the building of that consensus is also a really powerful feeling. Uh, and so decline can exist um, in a way that totally tracks to objective measures of the health of the society, but it can also be completely separate from them. And you can actually have moments where people are looking by every objective measure at a society that's not doing well, and they feel better about it because they have a common project to improve it. So good. I'm sorry. I just want to, this is kind of a response to what Cam said a second ago, but if I could get your opinion on something, Professor, would it be possible, is, is this accurate or not, for, for a Roman, after Hannibal is defeated, to go, you know what, I kind of feel like we've slipped a little bit. That that's that perfectly makes sense to me. But on the other hand, in the, almost in the next breath, they could go, you know what, if we get back to what made us great, if we get back to our Romanness, our culture, I bet we can pull ourselves out of this. Because Cam was, what Cam was saying a second ago, if you ask the average American, you know, if you look back, if you compare America now to post-World War II, yeah, not, not quite as good as we were. Oh, but we could get it back in a second if we really buckled down and we really came together, if we, whatever. We, I, I think Americans, like the Romans, have an optimistic view if they got their act together and I was just wondering, one, in your opinion, would, would that be fair to say that that's true? But if, if the answer is yes, how could the Romans not be optimistic after everything they went through with Hannibal to say, oh, my God, we are freaking amazing. We must have some great gods <laughs> backing us up. And then going from a city state to a city nation, how could you not think that you could overcome almost anything? Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think that the, I mean, a really interesting thing, and, and again, if we're looking in the 190s, the person mm -hmm. who's pushing this idea is Cato, Cato the Elder. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the curmudgeonly Cato, not the heroic Cato who stands up to Caesar. Right. And, uh, uh, and both, the person both is on the, curmudgeonly for my, for my, <laughs> uh, I'm not a fan of either of them, uh, really. But anyway, yeah, keep, keep going. Point no, taken. no, me neither. Me neither. <laughs> but I, I think the, the, the first Cato, Cato the Elder, um, he is particularly looking at Scipio Africanus in this. Mm -hmm. Um, and what he's particularly looking to do is to say that, you know, Scipio comes in and he has all of this money and he's building statues to himself on the Capitoline Hill and he's right. giving all these things to his soldiers. And you know what? You guys are missing out. Um, mm -hmm. And so the regular people who are not getting the benefits from Scipio look at that and they say, well, this isn't the Roman way to do things. Right. right. This is flashy. This is mm -hmm. um, this is too kind of demonstrative in how much you're giving out. And that's not how we do things. And what Cato does is he says, yes, you're right. That's not how we do things. Um, and the, the interesting part about that is Cato gets elected on basically the idea. He gets elected as censor on the idea of we're going to go back to how we were. I'm going to purge everyone of all of the, the luxury that's corrupting us after the victory over Hannibal. And, mm -hmm. um, and then he actually does it. And there's a backlash, a really significant backlash, uh, because people really did conceptually kind of abstractly agree with what Cato was saying. I mean, significant mm -hmm. numbers of people felt that Cato was actually talking about something that to them felt real, but then he actually goes and acts on it and he starts taxing, you know, property above a certain threshold. That's too luxurious, a mm -hmm. threshold set totally by Cato um, mm -hmm. and irrespective of anyone else's views. Uh, and the backlash against Cato then becomes really significant because people start saying, well, we liked the idea of going back to what Rome was we don't like that you're taking people's <laughs> rights away. We don't like that you're taking people's property away. We don't right. like that you kick guys out of the Senate for, you know, being too affectionate with their wives. Like we don't like any of that. 
But we like the idea of making Rome great again. And we don't really appreciate that you kind of sold us one thing and did something else once you came in as censor. I was was, uh, uh, boring my wife uh, talking about Cato the Elder uh, the other day because we were talking about um, uh, technology and and kids and iPads and we've got a seven-year-old and, you know, he spends all of his time on his iPad and we were talking about, you know, uh, how there's, there's this generational thing where we didn't grow up with technology, so we see it as bad, perhaps. You know, I don't, but others do. Um, and I was saying, yeah, well, you know what? In Cato the Elder's day, the technology that he was worried about was Greek literature. He was like, mm. uh, oh, no, everyone's what, well, they're reading Greek literature. That's going to corrupt their morals and their values. And it's the end of times because everyone's reading Greek literature. Like this, this story of something new, something different that we didn't have in our day is as old as at least Cato the Elder. And it seems like a little bit rough that that was going to ruin the empire. I mean, Alexander did okay with Greek literature behind him. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, as you, as you just mentioned, he kicked uh, this senator, Man, Manlius, out of the Senate for kissing his wife too passionately in public, which is a real footloose mm-hmm. move. I wanted to uh, just go back a sec, though, about talking about decline. So... You know, when when I think about how do how do we measure, how do we define decline, how do we measure decline? Is it by political freedoms of the citizens, or or the level of prosperity, or the size of the empire, or progress in civil rights? I'm assuming that over the course of this this whatever 1500 year period, more or less, uh, it was defined in lots of different ways by the people that were accusing Rome of decline. Yeah. No, I think that there um, there are some really interesting moments that you can point to where the story gets well twisted. Um, I mean, in the Republic, the story of decline it ha- you get it every year because it's a really effective way to run in an election. Yeah, you know, you, you say in essence, the guy who's there now is doing such a bad job that it's it's causing our society, you know, not just to be uncomfortable. We're actually declining. You need to elect me so I can fix it. And so in the Republic, this narrative, this story becomes something that it's used a lot. um, And I think our tendency is to look at this as kind of background noise to a representative democracy. And in the Mm -hmm. United States, uh, you go back and you look at the inaugural addresses every time a new president takes takes over from uh, a president from another party. The story is always that that story, you know, there are problems and I'm going to fix it. I mean, Trump's inaugural um, was probably the most explicit in saying, yeah, your country now is like a burned out shell of what it once was and I alone can fix it. Mm. But there are variations of things like that in Obama, in Clinton. Um, you know, you look at mm. these, uh, this is a common way that people take over as um, candidates in an electoral democracy. Mm. Once you get into the empire, it gets a little more interesting. Because uh, new emperors, of course, do this. It's the same thing. They're taking power from somebody else. If there's a new dynasty, you have to justify killing the person who was there before you. And that's actually a pretty serious thing, right? The job of emperor is a lifetime thing. If you are, 
you have to be doing it really badly to justify getting fired because getting fired means literally like dying and getting burned. Like you are not there anymore. So it's not like you go off into retirement unless you're Diocletian. Uh, you, you don't have that option. Mm. So, um, so the, the story when a new emperor takes power is always, this other guy was terrible. It was horrible. And we're in such profound decline as a society that the only solution was to kill this guy and I'm going to come in and I'm going to fix it. Mm. Um, but then the other interesting twist is the continuity that you have to maintain if that's not how you took power. Like Mm. if you're the designated successor of somebody You owe your position to the person who came before you. And even if that person did a terrible job and left you with a bunch of problems, you can't say, yeah, I mean, Trajan left me an unwinnable war in Iraq, so uh, I'm going to reverse the Roman decline. Mm. What you just do is fix the problem and take credit for fixing it. But you don't ever blame him for causing it. And so you, you get this story where there's transitions in power and you as an emperor have to say there was really profound decline that is so bad that the only solution was to kill this guy and bring me in to fix it. Um, But when you are succeeding somebody, it doesn't matter how bad they did. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to own it. You have to make them a God. You have to uh, invest them with the, the um, acknowledgement that they did a good job because you owe your position to them. And if they're terrible, what grounds do any Romans have to accept you when they chose you? Yeah. Uh, and you know, I think when, um, well, you probably saw this with, with Claudius, uh, when he took power from Caligula, he's in a really difficult position because he can't really own Caligula, but he has to be a, he's part of a dynasty. He has to own the connection to the dynasty. And so there's this really interesting game that Claudius is playing to, acknowledge Augustus and acknowledge Tiberius and acknowledge the, the dynasty, but not really tie himself very closely to Caligula. Yeah. Um, it's a real challenge because this rhetoric has become so deeply connected in Romans minds to shifts in power, um, that you have to be really careful how you use it in the Imperial period. Yeah. If, if I could real quick to stay on the same subject, subject but come from the opposite point of view, you mentioned Marcus Aurelius a couple of minutes ago. Was he one of the few leaders who is given a whole bunch of problems, but he doesn't blame a particular group? He's like, okay, we've got these problems. Let's break them down. Let's try to solve them. But isn't it harder to have the people want to follow you if you don't give them a common enemy, if you don't, I mean, it it almost seems like you're just making it easier on you. Oh, by the way, this is all the Christians fault, but he doesn't do that. As far as I gather, he's just like, let's break this down. So that's more honest and he should be applauded for that. But at the same time, he is kind of making his own life harder because he's not emotionally rousing the people behind him by pointing at a common enemy. I think that uh, the Antonines are a great example of this because um, I think, you know, Nerva has this reputation of being a great emperor. He was terrible. I mean, Domitian was a hundred times better than Nerva. Nerva couldn't run the empire at all. Um, And Trajan actually gets selected as a successor mainly because he, Nerva was given the choice of making Trajan his designated successor, having Trajan rebel and overthrow him. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet Trajan has to divinize him. He has to make him this glorious figure. He has to make him the founder of a wonderful dynasty. Mm -hmm. And objectively, there's no reason why anybody should think Nerva fits in the pantheon of great emperors. But Trajan put him there. And then Trajan was successful for much of his reign. But the last couple of years of Trajan's reigns were a disaster. 
and Hadrian comes in and, and he fixes the problems without blaming them on Trajan. But again, objectively, there's a major Jewish revolt that actually takes Alexandria for a little while while they're losing a war in Persia or in Parthia. And Hadrian deals with these problems, but he never throws them onto Trajan, even though it's pretty clearly Trajan's fault that those things happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Antoninus Pius does a similar thing with the problems he inherits from Hadrian. And so the Antonine dynasty is this great example of emperors who make that calculation that there could be a short-term benefit to them to say, my God, I mean, Hadrian messed things up, or my God, look what Trajan left me. Um, mm. But they make the calculation that the long-term cost of that isn't worth it. Mm. And so they basically accept the consequences that go along with reversing the policies of the people who came before them uh, and, and then move on. Um, and in Trajan's case, the policies were so bad that nobody was invested in them. But in Hadrian's case, Trajan had generals who really felt they could win in you know what's now Iraq. I mean, they really felt that they could stay the course, they could stick it out, they could actually win this war. Mm-hmm. And when Hadrian withdraws, he almost loses his life. I mean, these right. generals are so angry that Hadrian has to really kind of cordon them off and remove them from public life. Um, and wow. that's a risk, but it's a risk that I think he took understanding exactly what you said. I mean, he could have very easily built support in Rome for withdrawing from this war that wasn't going well, but he made the decision that the long-term consequence of reversing Trajan in that public a way and repudiating Trajan in that public a way um, wasn't worth it to him. He would rather take the short-term consequences and then be judged by the results of what he brought about. Um, But it's a unique moment. Uh, You really have to be in the middle of a strong and stable dynasty for emperors to start making those kinds of choices. And it sounds like you have to be an adult and not just take the easy (laughs) way out or being, you know, emotional about it. It's like, I'm going to make a very unpopular decision, but it's the right thing for the state. Screw it. We're going to do it and stick by that. Again, one of the few adults in the room. He should be applauded. And sometimes you die because of that. Yes. Um, I mean, Domitian, Domitian died because of that, because Mm -hmm. that was how Domitian thought about his frontier policy. And it ended up uh, being part of the rationale that people gave for killing him. Mm-hmm. Speaking of adults in the room, Ed, um, Ray has a really bad habit of jumping all over the timeline, and <laughs> I, I, I threatened him this morning. He did. Stick he did. to a timeline or else it's going to become like spaghetti here. So we okay. talked about... We're going to go back now. We're going to go back, yes. I was saying we're going back. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about... Um, Africanus and Cato the Elder. Um, Africanus's grandson, of course, was Tiberius Gracchus, one of one of my personal heroes, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> the great reformer. Now, in the book, you say that his claim that the countryside that had once been dotted with the small farms of free Roman citizens was now full of large estates and pastures tended by barbarian slaves wasn't true that archaeological records show no evidence of this happening. So are you saying that he was maybe embellishing what was really going on for political benefit? I think that he is very sensitive to the perception that people have. Um, Mm. I think that what we see in that period is if you have land along the coast or along a major road, that process is probably starting. Um, So if you are traveling through Italy, 
uh, and you're traveling on one of the major Roman roads. And the story that's told is he's traveling on his way to Spain because he's serving as a, a financial official um, on a Spanish campaign. Um, he is traveling on one of the major roads, and it was beginning to be possible for people to build these great estates uh, in areas that you would see when you were traveling. And so it's quite possible that he's seeing large estates on these these sort of freeways. Um, it's not what's going on in most of Italy. Most right. of Italy, it is still mm. small farms. And the, mm. the challenge that they're facing, though, is even in those large estates, those large estates are only a component of the, the wealth portfolio of the rich people in, in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not the biggest component. Mm-hmm. And so what Tiberius Gracchus is doing is he's... Uh, He's noticed a change in the landscape, and I think that change is real where he was seeing it. Um, mm-hmm. It's the same way, like mm-hmm. if you're traveling in the United States by freeway, you have one view of the country. If you're traveling by train, you have a different view. Mm-hmm. Um, the picture that he's getting from basically the freeway is a a view of what Italy will be probably 60 years in the future, mm-hmm. but it's not there yet. Mm-hmm. The small landholders are very much still in charge of the countryside that's off of those main roads. Um, but there is a really significant unease that people feel about wealth. And they can't put their finger on why. Mm-hmm. Um, but the period in, say, the, the generation before Tiberius Gracchus, there is a really dramatic increase in wealth that is connected to a few people who understand how finance works. Um, because mm-hmm. there's a financial financial sector that's developed in the middle part of the second century uh, that really allows people um, to build wealth portfolios very quickly. And it's not tied to tangible wealth. It's not tied to gold coins. It's not tied to land. It's tied to financial instruments. And so you can build wealth very quickly when it's not tied to something that you have to pull out of the ground or grow or um, you know control. Mm-hmm. And Tiberius Gracchus understands that people are really, really uncomfortable with the wealth inequality that's in Rome. Um, It's new. Uh, This division between the super wealthy and the regular Roman has become really pronounced in living memory. Mm. And they don't really know how to put their finger on how you address this. Mm. Um, You're not in a situation where like Italians are paying taxes or Romans are paying taxes. It's not like you can implement a, a kind of Bernie Sanders tax scheme where you redistribute wealth by taxing it and then sending it back out from the government. Mm-hmm. You don't have that capacity. Mm-hmm. And so Romans don't, they know they don't like what's going on. They don't really understand what's happening. Um, and they don't really understand that wealth is not the solution to it. But what Tiberius Gracchus understands deeply is it's not even at that moment about the solution. It's about making people feel like they're being listened to. Mm-hmm. And so the proposal that Tiberius Gracchus has is actually a relatively modest proposal. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to address wealth inequality. It's not even distributing privately held land. It's, driving, it's distributing publicly held land. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is at the same time something that rich people are moderately upset about. And the fact that rich people are upset about it is enough. Because it feels like you're doing something. It feels like you're listening. It mm-hmm. feels like you have put your finger on a cause for the, the discomfort that everybody is feeling about this wealth inequality in Rome. Mm-hmm. And so Tiberius Gracchus's genius um, is to understand that the measure itself is less important than the feeling that someone is listening. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And had the measure gone through without a hitch, it wouldn't have changed much of anything. Mm. You know, if he redistributed all of the land in all of the areas that mm. are covered by that land reform bill, mm. it's probably something that gets maybe 15,000 families into farmland in a population of, I think at this point, Italy's, what, four to five million people. Mm. Right. Um, it's not going to make a difference. But the elites would have but seen it. But it will feel a, like it. It's a slippery slope argument, right? If, 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 if this goes ahead, what's next? Next, you know, they'll be, we'll be legalizing sex with animals. I mean, it's, it's part of this slippery slope argument that still gets used today when there's reform trying to happen. But the thing that I found, the thing that I'd never really thought about before but jumped out at me in reading your book is you have Cato the Elder saying that Rome's declining because Scipio Africanus is displaying this extravagant wealth, which wasn't very Roman of him. Then... A couple of generations later, it's Africanus's grandson who is saying, you know, we need to reform. It's declining because there's all of this wealth that's being used in inappropriate ways. So the fact that the grandson of the rich guy that was the problem for Cato the Elder is <laughs> now the reformer, it kind of struck me as very FDR-y. You know, rich, mm. blue blood, I assume Tiberius was, you know, raised as a bit of an elite. Mm. It's a member of the elite uh, tr being a traitor to his own class in a way is the way that it must have been perceived by the elite. I found that yeah. just a fascinating idea. And I think that's exactly what's going on. I mean, the people who are behind him are other Scipiones, right? I mean, people who are behind killing him are other Scipiones. Yeah. Um, and the, the reason that they're upset, again, it's not that the reform is so bad. They let the mm. reform, after Tiberius Gracchus is killed, they don't get rid of the reform. The reform yeah. is still in place. The law yeah. is still valid. It's yeah. the way he's doing it. Yeah. And what they feel he's doing is threatening in a, a way that borders on political violence, threatening the traditional um, patrician plebeian oligarchy that has been running things and dictating how policies are made in Rome. Mm -hmm. And Tiberius Gracchus is threatening that in a way that goes far beyond what his policy would actually do. Uh, and the reason that the people who murdered him justified murdering him is basically they said, like, that's the slippery slope that he was on is he mm -hmm. was going to he was intimidating us, but mm -hmm. he would have used violence if he needed to. And mm -hmm. I think they're wrong, but it is a slippery slope to say, well, we had to do it before he did it to us first. Preemptive, Preemptive killing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's – and the thing that jumped out at me there is that's what they said when they assassinated Caesar. Well, he was going to make himself king. Uh, you know, so we yeah. had to kill him. Uh, the insurrection in Washington earlier this year. Well, this is, you know, they're going to do this. They're going to do that. It's this preemptive strike mentality that, get, like the, the thing that we say all of the time on our shows is humans haven't changed very much. We have nicer toys and better air conditioning, <laughs> but really... Uh, humans haven't changed, right? Our arguments, our motivations uh, haven't changed in thousands of years of recorded history. Um, Cicero defended the uh, murder of I write, oh, oh, of Tiberius Gracchus here, you, you, you mention in your book. Um, but Appian said both sides were to blame and he pointed to this event as the beginning of the decline, as we did too in the beginning of this series. Where we started this series saying, well, you can't understand Julius Caesar without understanding, you know, what came 
before, like the 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 Rome that he was living in at the time, and we sort yeah. of we started. I think I think we started with the Gracchi. Um, mm-hmm. where, where do you think that falls into this story of the decline of Rome, the the Gracchi brothers? How important is it? I think it's a really significant shift in how Rome works. Um, you know, the last moment of political violence was in the fourth century BC before that. Uh, you know, it, it is something that, um, we like to think of Western democracies as non places where political violence is rare or non-existent. Uh, the Romans had 300 years without any. Hmm. And so when you have political violence in the way that happens with Tiberius Gracchus and then Gaius Gracchus, it's a really significant change in how a republic works. And yeah. it's no, I think it's no mistake that when Cicero set, writes his dialogue about the republic, he sets it right after the murder of Tiberius Gracchus. And he has Scipio Africanus II, you know, Scipio Emilianus, um, as the person, the main character who's guiding the discussion of what a republic should be. And that work is very, very strongly against the idea that there should be any violence whatsoever in a, a functional republic. Um, and Cicero's point in there is that um, that was the moment Rome could have fixed it. Right? That moment after Tiberius Gracchus was the moment when Rome could have fixed it. And he felt that the death of Scipio was ultimately the thing that doomed the republic. Not the death of Tiberius Gracchus, but the fact that Scipio died before he could fix it. And so the whole dramatic conceit of Cicero's Republic is we had a great representative democracy. It worked really, really well. We had this moment of violence and there was a time when we could have pulled back from it, but we didn't. And instead, what we have is this Republic where uh, we're moving towards moments where stability occurs only when somebody is strong enough to dominate the state by himself. And he's Mm -hmm. thinking particularly of the sole consulship of Pompey in, Mm -hmm. what was it, 52 Um, and in Cicero's mind, he doesn't, he's not written this after Caesar has rebelled, but he understands full well that once you have a Republic that functions peacefully, only when there's a strong man sort of looking over it to be sure Mm -hmm. that it functions peacefully, that isn't actually stable because somebody will come along and say, I can take that guy down. Mm -hmm. And Cicero's intuition is exactly right. You know, Mm. that Republic is taken down because Caesar says, you know what, this is not working for me and I can take him down. Mm. And Cicero, in a way, even though he he didn't imagine it would would quite unfold that way, Cicero understood that dynamic. Mm. I mean, he really felt the way that Rome could have avoided that was to have come back together following the death of uh, Tiberius Gracchus and really figured out what the Republic should be, how it should work and Mm. how to prevent it from becoming what Cicero knew it would become. Mm. So is Pandora's box now open? If I'm a if I'm a politician, violence is now one more tool in my toolbox that I can use, and I can point at the precedent of the brothers Gracchus. So it's not something new. I'm not some radical that's been done before. This is something that I can incorporate into my quiver, and I can use it. Obviously, it's an extreme thing, but it is something that is now doable because it has been done. Exactly. And, and I think what you see is um, guys like Saturninus, they learned how to do this. They learned mm-hmm. how to do this much, much better. The person that I think gets such short shrift, and I think it's mm-hmm. really unfortunate, is Gaius Gracchus. I mean, mm-hmm. if there's anyone that I can advocate as a hero in this sort of 
century that the Republic unfolds, he's actually a hero, I think, because he knew what he was doing. And he was about policy. Mm-hmm. He wasn't about flash. He wa- he had the skills. He was a tremendous rhetorician, but he was about creating policies that actually addressed real problems in a big and significant way. And he knew he would die for it, and he still did mm-hmm. it. Wow, that's a hero. But the one percent aren't going to tolerate that. Uh, you you write in your book something. If I can, if I'm getting this right, um, after the brothers Greg I are gone, the Senate has to ask itself: Is violence by the state? ever warranted? And I guess their answer is the Sinatus Sinatus Consultum Ultimum, them (laughs) saying, yes, there are times when we're going to have to pull out the sword ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's ultimately, um, that's ultimately the weapon that they can use to say killing Roman citizens without a trial, without Mm. any kind of um, appeal, without any kind of way for them to get redress is something that's consistent with the Republic. Um, and it's, it's a move that it's, it's a really radical move that basically justifies one sort of political violence and institutionalizes Mm -hmm. one sort of political violence. Um, but it also provides, as we can see, it provides rationales for people on the other side, generally Mm -hmm. populists to act violently too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because if you're going to get an, if you're going to get a Sonatus Consultum Ultimum thrown against you. Well, why should you just sit there and take it? Why should you let them do this to you? Why should you not at least defend yourself? And this is, of course, what Caesar's thinking. Yeah. And, you know, again, you know, I'm seeing this play out in, in Australia today right now. We have people protesting against lockdowns and masks, even though, you know, we've hardly been touched by the virus really here compared to your country and many other places in the world. But some places like Sydney have been in lockdown for a couple of months now. Melbourne was in lockdown for a few months last year. People are protesting. They're protesting without masks. Then the government roll out militarised police to uh, sort of shut down the protest. Then the people are like, look, they're rolling out militarised police. This is what the state's becoming. This is state violence. We need to protest against that. And you just get this, you know, uh, spiral happening where, yeah. you know, it's it, it becomes almost inevitable, the outcome. It's it's going to continue to escalate until, you know, then again, getting back to January 6th, right? That was quite predictable that, that there was going to be an event like that in the United States based on the rising tensions and the rhetoric over the last few decades, right, culminating in... Trump and January 6th. So we have we have the Gracchi, that obviously leads then to Marius and Sulla, the Catalinarian conspiracy, uh, Saturninus, uh, Pompey, Crassus, the Triumvirate, Clodius, Julius Caesar, as you mentioned, who, you know, I mean, obviously uh, it, it just decided, A, it wasn't working for him, and B, there's no reason to protect the Republic anymore. The Republic's dead. It's stick a fork in it. It's done. Um, really, there's this. It's it had been West. what a hundred years at that stage, I guess. Um, at four in forty nine, it, it just it had been spiraling out of control. Increasing levels of violence, uh, electoral manipulation, and corruption, and all this kind of stuff. Um, 
where does Augustus then fit into your narrative? Augustus is a really interesting figure because he's so, so hard to talk about in a holistic way. Um, mm. I mean, I hate that word, but it's the only word to use for him. Because the, the first phase, the Octavian phase, uh, he is one of the worst butchers, certainly in Roman history and probably in human history. And he has mm. absolutely no hesitation in right. using state violence um, and using it as a political tool and using it more aggressively and regularly and kind of sequentially and systematically than anyone who came before him, even more so than Sulla. And then the second part of his career is this constructive phase where he builds a political infrastructure that brings together a Roman state in a fashion that I think is inconceivable and then lasts for 1500 years with, Mm -hmm. you know, amendments and evolutions. But that structure that Augustus puts in place is so good and so good in a sort of functional sense um, and so effective that it's really hard to square that constructive Augustus with that destructive Octavian. Um, But I think if if we wanted to try and look at this in terms of decline, um, Octavian phase, you know, early Augustus, he understands what that means. Um, He understands that people feel really, really upset about what happened with Caesar. Um, He understands that the, the great a rhetorical move that Antony made at Caesar's funeral had really solidified people's view of what Caesar was. And the legacy of Caesar was then something that people were willing to, um, willing to get behind as a rallying cry and a way to um, rise up and fight violently against the people who had murdered Caesar. And so he did that uh, and he understood that and he promised first retribution and then he promised a more functional state that could protect them against people like Sextus Pompey, people like Antony, Cleopatra, whoever it was that was on his horizon as an enemy, he was offering Romans a, a, a promise that he would protect them and avenge them just like he had done Caesar. Um, what's also interesting is he's very deeply plugged into the way Romans in the late Republic thought about decline. So mm-hmm. if you read someone like Sallust, um, Sallust I think is one of the best Uh, people describing what the conditions of decline are actually like for a person. Now, Sallust is an incredibly corrupt political official. Um, He's a friend of Caesar, so he gets pardoned, but he is uh, notorious for how corrupt he was. And Sallust writes in his Catiline that, you know, I went into this wanting to be a good public servant, and I became corrupt and I was bad. And yeah, that's true. But the conditions were so bad that how could you not be corrupt, right? I was corrupted by the moment. And yeah, I did bad things, but everybody did bad things at that moment. And what Augustus was able to say was, uh, yeah, we're we're repairing the morality of Rome. And yeah, it's not your fault. It wasn't your fault Mm. that you did all these terrible things. Right. It was because of the climate of the age. The Roman virtues had all declined so badly that you couldn't but do the horrible things that you did in the 40s and 30s. Uh, And I'm fixing that. And so the moral legislation and the the promises that he makes about restoring the virtue of of Rome and even restoring the political functioning uh, along lines that Republicans might recognize, it's also a redemption story for the people who were left from the 30s and 40s. Because now they could be reintegrated. And so Augustus gives you decline, but he also gives you restoration. He gives you renewal. Uh, And so the success of this transition from Octavian to Augustus is in many ways grounded on this promise of renewing Rome 
even though in a previous incarnation, Augustus himself had done more than anyone to destroy it. Uh, and the genius of Augustus as an emperor is he's able to create that illusion uh, that Augustus as emperor has fixed all of these problems without really acknowledging that Augustus, you know, before he was Augustus, caused many of them. And then he's around long enough as emperor. I mean, 41 years is a lifetime for a Roman. Um, he's around long enough that not only does the renewal become something that he promises, but it's something that he delivers. And then people are accustomed to that system being the way that things are. And so Augustus has this unique ability to uh, come in, uh, fix a crisis, create a system that enables that, that solution to the crisis to endure, and then actually argue for the continuity of um, you know, his reign as something that perpetuates the good things that he himself created. And by the time he dies, as Tacitus says, there's no one left who remembers anything but, you know, either the Civil Wars or Augustus. Um, and right. Tacitus is exactly right. You wrote in the book, the imperial order that Augustus created did bring about peace, stability, and a return to social order, but it did so at a tremendous cost. What, what was the cost, in your view? Uh, the cost was uh, you've put in a cre- you've put in a system that has taken away the aspects of representative democracy that Rome once had. Um, I mean, there are initially elections under Augustus. Those kind of fade away. Um, I mean, you have the veneer of Republican government continuing. Uh, coins issued by Augustus are issued by moneyers who sign them just like they did under the Republic, but only the mm-hmm. bronze coins. The, you know, by the time you're in the late phases of Augustus, that's already kind of eroding away. And what Augustus created was the, the mechanisms that would ultimately erode those things away entirely. So the assembly stopped meeting. Um, you stop having actual votes on decisions. You stop having even the facade of electoral democracy that Augustus had early on. Um, I think there's a real problem that we have to understand when that goes away, because there a Roman election um, involved a couple of things that were really important for Roman society. I mean, one is of course you're choosing your leadership. Um, but another part of that is this is a representative democracy where lots of people's voices don't really matter. Um, if you're from an urban tribe, your voice doesn't really matter because you're not you're only going to be one component of one component of a larger unit. Um, if you're poor, your voice doesn't really matter. But the fact that you have a voice at all means you can come together as a society and participate in something that gives you a common purpose. And that's part of what Roman elections did, is they, they gave you a common purpose. They meant something. They meant that you were part of a citizen body. And when those elections go away, that ability to feel part of a citizen body also goes away. And that's when you start getting things like um, the demonstrations in the Hippodrome or the, the circus, uh, the um, amphitheaters. You know, the, the sorts of ways that you now can chant as a crowd, um, but you can't actually speak in quite the way that you did when there were elections. And so I think there's a real consequence, and it's a consequence that emperors will struggle with. I mean, how do you really build a sense of common purpose in something that's as big as the Roman Empire when you don't have any mechanisms that bring these people together? Um, And that's really something, ultimately, I think it's not a problem that they effectively solve until probably Diocletian and Constantine. But 
as we've already discussed, the, the democracy of the late republic was corrupt, it was violent, it had led to civil wars. Um, was it really a bad thing to get rid of all of that and try and start again? Yeah, I think that that's the trade that Romans were willing to make. Mm. Um, they did not feel it was like a bad thing. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I don't sure think that there's any did, of them. <laughs> not not by the death of Augustus. I don't think that there's really anybody who wants to go back to that. Um, well, I, I, I think there's, there's members of the elite that, uh, you know, don't get to rise up the curses of Norum. They don't get a share of the spoils like they used to. You know, there's a... There's this long family, you know, for centuries, obviously, that this is what we do. If you're a patrician, you get to rise up and you get to be consul and you get all the trappings with that. Augustus keeps, you know, a a facade of that happening. But everyone knows that it ain't like it was in the old days. I think there are some of them that would like it. But as you mentioned, and we talk about a lot, by the time Augustus dies, no one has the the cojones to to you know, like by the time we get to Tiberius, the Senate can't even make a decision to save themselves. They're like such a weak, wet fish of a, of a group. <laughs> it's 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 sort of self self perpetuating, right? Even Tiberius says, and this goes on after Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, everyone says, "Can you just make a decision? I don't want to have to do everything, right? I've got palaces to build, sex." I've got sex dungeons to build on Capri. I'm busy, right? I've got, I've got little boys swimming in pools, nibbling on my genitals. I need to train. I, I, I don't have time to make decisions about the running of Rome. But they're in, they're incompetent. They're incapable. It's gone. But you still, we still see people bitching about it, like right through up to Nero. There are conspiracies. There, there is obviously whispers. We need to get back to the Republic. If we can just get rid of this guy, you know, everything will be like it was. You know, going back to uh, Crassus and uh, – sorry, not Crassus, uh, Brutus and um, – God, who was Brutus's best mate? Cassius. 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 Thank you. Ca- I always get Crassus and Cassius confused. Um there are guys that, that, that later on still want to get back to it, but they just – I think the majority it's of the gone. people, though, are sort of happy with peace and prosperity. That's really what people well, – yeah, this is you – know, sorry, I'm all over the place here. Uh, but, you know, when we talk about – when I talk when we're in some of our other shows and we talk about China today and, you know, Western commentators like, well, you know – Xi Jinping is heavy-handed and the CCP is heavy-handed and this and that and they have this and blah, blah, blah. You go, yeah, but they've pulled 850 million people out of poverty in the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. I think for the average Chinese person, they're like, you know what, life's pretty good compared to what it was 50 years ago. 50 years ago, we were the 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 a poor third-world pathetic country. Now we nailed COVID in like three months and the US had 600,000 deaths. I know, you know, with a population a fraction of the size, I know which system works best for me, right? Yes, it might be we don't have the same level of political freedoms and social freedoms, but got food in my belly, got a house, you know, safety, security. It's a trade-off that people are still willing to make today. I think that the the way that the empire worked best is by when it preserved those as much of those freedoms as it could. 
um, you know, when you didn't actually expose the limits of, well, the, the real restrictions on the freedoms that um, had been lost when the Republic fell. And Augustus, I think generally, I mean, especially after 19, was very good at emphasizing the positives of the imperial regime and downplaying the the autocratic tendencies that led to restrictions of freedoms. And when emperors tended to to run into real problems, it was when they were perceived to be overstepping their bounds and taking away rights from people that um, they shouldn't be doing. I mean, this is why one of the things that a lot of new emperors like to do is to go into the Senate and say, we will never execute a senator without a trial before the Senate. Um, mm-hmm. Because that's, they perfectly, they completely have the right to do that. Um, mm-hmm. But what they're saying is, even though I have that right, I respect this principle of senatorial autonomy. Uh, and generally speaking, when emperors have the perception, when people believe that emperors are obeying these kinds of basic norms that on some level go back to the Republic, they're okay. They're not seen as as horrible. Um, when their perception is that they are violating these things, then there is a a real backlash against them. But it's interesting, like in the case of Vespasian, who you guys will get to pretty soon, I imagine, um, Vespasian actually kills quite a few senators, relatively speaking. But Vespasian doesn't get the reputation for doing this. Um, I think if you compare, say, the treason trials under Tiberius following the fall of Sejanus with some of the executions of Vespasian, what you find is Vespasian's people, I believe, he were less likely to be found not guilty. And I think about the same number of people were killed. Mm. Um, so it's a perception thing. It's not mm. that you don't have the capacity to do these things. It's that you are giving the, the, you're giving out the impression that you respect the kinds of liberties and protections that the Republic provided. And that's really what people cared about in the Republic. Um, the, the Republic's sort of participatory aspect was important to the people who are benefiting from it. But the Republic's protection of the rights and, pro- and property of citizens was what most people really valued in the Republic, is that you had particular rights that were protected. Um, mm. And the Republican system gave you those protections. And if that meant some of those protections meant you could go and pop off about somebody, then that's what it meant. But that's not why you wanted the Republic. Mm. Um, when you see people like, uh, you know, the the people like Helvidius Priscus in the 90s who are popping off about Domitian, they have a different view of what the Republic was than I think most Romans. Mm. Um, And what Augustus was able to trade on was this idea of, I mean, do you really care if you can speak freely when I can give you these protections of your life and your liberty and your property that the Republic no longer can? And so his argument about the Republic being broken, I think, is about there's a fundamental promise the Republic makes to its citizens, and it's no longer keeping it. And Mm, so I can give you a version of the Republic that keeps those promises. Mm. And yeah, that means you can't come out and say whatever you want in a public square. But in all honesty, is that really more important to you than Mm. staying alive and, Mm. you know, keeping Mm. your house? And Mm. no one walking around pulling a sword. Getting back to your coffee mug. 